you're going to have to trust that that pointing yourself at the cross and accepting the promise of the resurrection power in your life is going to work, even though you've just sinned. Welcome, everyone, to the Faith Recovery Podcast, where three failed pastors, Alex, Kent, and Nathan, are seeking to recover from bad ideas about God and recover the true faith, the true gospel. And we're here to explore that further today in our series called Recovering Faith. This is episode number 10 called Conjugating Salvation. Conjugating is like a grammar word. And um, I, I'm not sure exactly, Nathan, what you meant by that right. metaphor. Yeah. Uh, what did you mean by that metaphor? Well, we're talking about how um, salvation is a bit bigger of a concept in the Bible than maybe at least I've seen it to be. Um, the Bible uses the idea of salvation in various tenses, like we have been saved, we're being saved, and we will be saved. So uh. we're just talking about salvation as something that is an overarching experience for the Christian and not some one time you prayed a prayer and now you're saved. We tend to use it as past tense because we tend to see it as something that took place in our past rather than something going on right now right. or something that will happen in the future. So there's so. elements to our salvation that are in the past. There are elements that are in the present and ongoing. And there are elements to our salvation that are in the future. And you are going to help us today understand that by talking about how justification, which is very prominent in Protestant Christianity, uh, is, is only one part of our salvation. This thing that happened in the past is only one part of our salvation. In reality, most of us who grew up in at least Protestant churches, we talk about how we were saved yeah. in the past. Right. I think your point today is that, well, we were justified in the past, but our salvation is not merely something that is in the past. There yeah. are, it's ongoing and it's in the future. And that that's really important to understand the fullness of the gospel. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess you could say we are being justified, but that's a whole other conversation. Uh, yeah. I mean, there's a doctrine. I grew up in the Baptist church and I don't mean to, you know, disparage, but I... I we had a doctrine called once saved, always saved, which very much put it in the past. Yeah. Um, and yet the scripture seems to speak of it in other ways. There are just passages in the Bible that seem to speak to salvation as being a broader concept than just we were forgiven and now we're not going to hell anymore. And so in 1 Corinthians 15 too, uh, Paul says that, he reminds them of the message that he had spoken at the first, the message about Christ. And, and then he says, by this, you're, you are saved. Um, and then in 1 Corinthians 1, 18, uh, he speaks of those who are being saved. He says, for the message of the cross is foolish to, foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And so there's something both... In the, in the negative, something that's happening, people are perishing right now, but then there's something that is also, uh, you know, remediating that perishing and it is that process of being saved. And then in 1 Corinthians three fifteen, he talks about <clears throat> this metaphor of someone building on a good foundation. And um, he says that 
it, you know, what you what you build on it, the day will prove it. And if it's burned up, um, he says, the builder will suffer loss, yet will be saved, even though as one escaping through the flames. And so uh, these concepts of have been saved, are being saved, will be saved, are just in one book. Paul seemed to traffic freely through these ideas of, of salvation as something that has happened in our past, is currently happening, and will happen in our future. Um, he obviously speaks similarly in other books, but I thought it would be helpful just to see how that's all in one letter. Mm-hmm. So for Paul, it's it's a they're a unity. They're not some sort of a contradiction um, as we tend to do. You know, we tend to kind of have either or doctrines, and we say, well, if you don't believe in one saved, always saved, then you know. You believe in this kind of umbrella salvation and you can't be saved at all and or whatever and paul just didn't seem to have that kind of struggle mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so in the new testament uh, uh we can see in one even in one of paul's letters that he can refer to salvation as something that's in the past something also that is occurring now in the present and also he can refer to salvation as something that will occur mm-hmm. in the future yeah now is this because there, uh, there are things that need, needed to be dealt with in the past, and they have been, but there are maybe different things that need to be dealt with in the present. Sure. And, and, then, whole, yeah. and then another set of problems that need to be dealt with in the future. Yeah, I'm, and we've been saying salvation is, is this experience, right? It requires God's power. Uh, and if it were just forgiveness and a change in your eternal status, that wouldn't qualify as something that required power to carry out. Uh, or if it did, we certainly wouldn't be able to confirm or deny that power had been exercised or expended in some way, right? And so, you know, if I, if I just said to you, I you know, I have the power to dispel the pink elephant elephants who are invisibly haunting you and drinking all the milk in your refrigerator or something, you know, and you and you believe me, but, you know, and I say, well, they're gone now. And, and you know, maybe you know, we have to confirm it. Like, I guess if the milk's still in your refrigerator, you're, you're going to be fine. But something needs to happen, right? If nothing happens, if I just say, you know, these are the invisible elephants who are plaguing you and they're keeping you from having lots of opportunities that you would otherwise have. And now they're gone, right? You don't really have a way to, to confirm or deny. You're not going to be like, man, that was... That was quite an encounter. You really set me free there. And I think that's how people hear the gospel when we say, God's going to forgive you for your sins, and then you can go to heaven when you die. And, and that seems to be what's happened when people say they're saved. But would somebody, so someone goes through that. Say you're a third party, and you watch somebody pray that prayer, and they get up, and, and they feel better, right? But would you stand there and just be in awe? And you would say, the power of God has been here. You know, um, well, that's that's a harder sell. Um, so that's what we're saying, that salvation has to be something demonstrable if we're going to believe Paul when he says that the gospel is the power of God to save. Being saved, people don't wonder if they were saved in just the vernacular, right? It's just like, if, if we use that term, oh, you saved me. Right. Well, they may tell a story about a time when their car broke down in snow and ice and they thought they might freeze to death, but someone came by and actually 
rescued them from right. a perilous situation. So in our lives, we have stories from time to time about actually being saved right. from a perilous situation. And I think your argument is that the way we understand the gospel and the way we preach the gospel traditionally, in at least in Protestant churches, um, is that there's there's no proof of having been rescued. Yeah, I'm just thinking about, because um, I was just reading this in your manuscript. Oh, you're right. <laughs> yeah, the imputed righteousness yeah. thing. Um, which there's an aspect to, of that in, you know, the righteousness that comes through our salvation. Right. But um, that's a very transactional view, and I think that's what we tend to latch on to in our, our Protestant tradition that, okay, uh, because we, you know, we mentally assented and believed in this thing that took place on the cross, um, and, you know, I, I say a sinner's prayer, then... Now I'm saved. This transaction has happened. God has put righteousness into my account. And now I'm just hanging out until I get to go to heaven. Yeah. Yeah. But if we say, if we say salvation is something that should be perceptible, uh, we have to, we have to be able to articulate what we were saved from. And we've done that. I think uh, that there's this clear and present danger that people are experiencing, that they are degrading from and so we get that idea of to those who are perishing the word of the cross the message of the cross sounds like foolishness paul says so people are they aren't just living a happy life and everything is great and sunshine and roses but they're going to have a crashing disappointment and go to hell someday that uh that there is a degradation going on within each person um and maybe they don't they don't perceive it yet but if pointed out you could say well you know what about this experience then and, and they could begin to recognize it so it's not something like we have to we have to create a narrative that they're going to have to buy into completely and then save them from that narrative we can point to things in their experience and say that's not normal that's not the way your life should be and then we can provide them the gospel and the gospel will remove that it will begin to deal with it and so there's this this transformation that ought to happen that salvation should describe and that makes it harder for us that puts a lot more burden of proof on on the christian and on the christian movement if we say salvation is something that is experiential it's from a clear and present danger well we better you know, our message better deliver, mm-hmm. right? And so that can feel risky. It's a lot easier to say, if you pray this prayer, your sins will be forgiven. You'll go to heaven someday because there's no uh, falsification of that claim. That that claim is unfalsifiable. And, and that's a critique, and I think a legitimate critique, that a lot of skeptics have. You know, they, they uh, Russell, um, Bertram Russell, famously spoke of this invisible tea, teapot, the teapot right? around this right right <laughs> and so it's unfalsifiable right we can claim we can make a claim that there's a, tea, a teapot around the sun but you can't see it and you just have to believe it so if it can't be falsified then you make this claim and you you also shouldn't be taken seriously if your claim can't be falsified if you if you structure things in such a way that no one can prove or disprove what you said then you're just talking nonsense and fables. 
Um, and I think that if we, if our message is limited to Jesus died on the cross for your sin, and by sin I mean that you broke these this list of rules that you didn't know about, but now you do. Sorry about that. And then you're guilty, and now you're going to go to hell. But if you would pray this prayer with me, now you'll go to heaven. Um, and and so I've created the danger in your mind, and now I'm saving you from the danger. It's almost like a protection racket. It begins to sound like to people, right? <laughs> you know, it's just like this is really now dangerous. Look, uh, you know, there's this place called hell. We really right. hate if you had to go right. there. Right. Yeah. So why don't you say this prayer and then right. uh, we'll yeah. make sure that never happens. Right. <laughs> it's just you know, this cost you your Sunday mornings and ten percent of your income. <laughs> yeah. So and and that's all a very cynical uh, approach, but I think we need some cynicism in the Christian movement because. Our, if we don't evaluate what we're saying, then our, our critics will. And uh, we have to be aware of that. And so if we can't demonstrate it, and, and it makes me think of the story in Matthew 9 where these, uh, these guys bring this um, paralyzed guy, right? And, he, and, they, and they lower him through the roof. They tear off Peter's roof and they lower him on these ropes. And, and Jesus looks at the poor guy and he says, your sins are forgiven, mm -hmm. right? Uh, and that's us. Right? <laughs> that's the Christian movement. And we're like, be well. Yeah. You know, I mean, we're like, see ya. You know, hey guys, could you get him back up and also call a roofer? Um, and then we're done, you know, and, and the Pharisees had a problem with that. And I, and I think, you know, I have to sympathize with them to some degree and say, yeah, that, that does seem problematic. Um, so Jesus says, well, what's easier to say, you know, what's harder to say to a paralyzed person, your sins are forgiven or get up and walk. Mm -hmm. Right. And um, we're like, wow, that would be hard to say, you know, be well, you know, be be healed of your of this spiritual degradation. You know, have have a completely new experience of life is a very hard thing to tell somebody um, unless you really believe God's going to show up and something's going to happen. So, you know, I, I think that our claims to salvation need to be more on the side of get up and walk um and then people can hear us when we say and your sins are forgiven mm -hmm. so there needs to be a, a demonstrable change in people and that ought to equate to salvation to some degree for us um, and that the gospel it seems is the one message the one worldview that i'm aware of that gives us the resources to counter the real hazards to our souls um and that i don't think that's a i'm drifting into spirituality when i say souls i think all of us whether you're a believer or not understand that there's a non-material part of you you may understand that as just neurons in your brain but you still experience that there's something that's essentially you we don't know what it is you know you could say it's just a product of chemical processes that's fine but whatever it is it's something you probably want to retain. You don't want to lose as being, long as being you can. your consciousness. Right. I mean, it's like if you lose that, then you don't exist. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. And and but we're all in danger of having that being um, just kind of diffused into other people's expectations and the pressures on us. And we mm -hmm. we make concessions along the way just to make peace or to not suffer or whatever. But it, but there's a, a cost to that. You know, th this idea of selling our souls uh, at some crossroads in exchange for being able to play a guitar real good is is a myth that people's souls are being um, given away piecemeal. 
piece by piece. Right. Yeah. And so you, we covered this in some of the earlier um, podcasts, the elementary principles of this world and how control and conformity is at the root of this disintegration of our identity and who we who we essentially are in our mm-hmm. souls. And so I, I think that's important because talking about the way salvation work is it it's reintegrating us, right? It's right. putting us back together, but that's not a one-time event. Right. It's a progressive, ongoing event that started in the past, is happening now, Yeah. as God continues to work His Holy Spirit in us, and it will continue to work on through the future until Jesus comes home. Right. So. Now, but what is the gospel that actually does save us in the present from the conforming pressures of the world and from the internal corruption of our own souls because is it it the question i think then becomes is it this gospel of the forgiveness of sins that does that or is there more to the gospel than the forgiveness of sins yeah well i think forgiveness of sins is included because one way that the that the elementary principles of the world control us or have a claim on us so this authority and conformity is if they have some sort of a legitimate um, contention violation that they can claim against us mm-hmm. so uh, if the, if they can say you've you owe society a b and c and you've only given us a and and so you continue to owe us B and C, and and we're going to be here to take our pound of flesh. Then, that if we're not justified, if we feel less than, and we feel that we are deficient in some way, legitimately, then we cannot be free. So justification has this. If we understand justification as not just the glossing over of our violations, but the transcendence into an echelon of moral existence that that goes beyond law and rules mm-hmm. okay so, so that justification is not merely that our sins are forgiven but also that we have now been um liberated from uh living under law right and we no longer have a law to keep right yeah or is it that we have a new law to no keep? no no <laughs> there's not we a- have a, we have a law that's not law uh, so there are two kinds of laws, right? There's a legislated law, and you have to learn that to really know whether you violated it. And then the violations are kind of black and white, and you you know. But then there are laws of natural laws, right? So let's take inertia as a natural law. It doesn't need to be enforced. It doesn't need to be written down. You, if you violate it, then you will pay the price, right? Regardless, speed limit is. A, a contrived law, a written law. So, and the speed limit is there to account for inertia, right? So you're in a 3,000 pound, 4,000 pound vehicle. And if you're going at 80 miles an hour in a school zone, we know that it's going to take you this long to stop. A kid walks out in front, there, there's problems. So there's a 25 mile an hour speed limit law there, right? Okay. But what if you're, you're the t- sort of person who is just acutely concerned for the well being of other people? Mm-hmm. And you understand inertia. Mm-hmm. Do you need a school zone law if you are acutely aware of other people? And let's add one more. You are convinced that 
your destiny is taken care of. Mm -hmm. So you're never in some sort of a dilemma of, do I need to go? If I don't go really fast, I'm going to be late and I'm going to be fired. So I hope a kid doesn't pull out and walk out in front of me because I'm going to go 80 through this school zone because I may be in trouble later. So if, if I can say, look, your destiny is handled. You don't need to go. You don't need to speed through here because you're taken care of. And you're acutely aware of the well-being of other people. So you're ready to lay down your immediate, you know, whatever's going on, the crisis that you're in. You're ready to just repress that and say, you know what? What's more important is these people. Do you need a a speed limit posted at the school zone. No, obviously not. Right. And, and so that, that we're under this echelon where Paul, you know, Paul talks about how we're under this covenant and he says, what kind of law are we under? Is it a law of works? No, because then we would have something to boast of. That's the problem is, is that the law sets a minimum and then people start feeling really good about, you know, I've never been to jail. It's like, no, you're not supposed to go to jail. Right. Uh, then that gives people something to boast in. That's ridiculous. It's just relative. Um, and, and yet having done away with the law, he says, not a law of, of works, but a law of faith. Now, we talk about the law of faith as though it's just if you believe you will be forgiven. But the law of faith is that by which we conduct ourselves in the world, just as law gives you a code of conduct. So faith gives you a code of conduct. And that's the thing that I think that we've missed is that the, the experience of being saved is the experience of operating on faith rather than confining rules predicated on punishments. That there's a totally different way to approach our conduct. And that way is faith living in concert with the faith of the gospel that this specific configuration of faith, the crucifixion, resurrection, that that becomes the, um, the shape of this thing, that this concept that's otherwise nebulous. So the gospel message um, offers us this life of faith by which we are being saved. Right. Um, so it offers us this, this uh, promise that we're, our sins are forgiven in the past and we're we're justified, we're counted righteous, and we're accepted by God regardless of what we've done or what we're like to even now, mm -hmm. in our character now. Um, that, and on that basis, we can then enter into a life of faith. And it's this life of faith that has the power in it to save us mm -hmm. from the corrupting influences of this world and the corruption that's in our souls. Sure, yeah. So, I mean, if somebody wants you to violate your conscience in some way, or they're going to reject you as a person. So let's say that there's two young people and they're dating and um, they, maybe their relationship's gone on for a while and one of them starts pressuring the other one to, you know, have sex. But the other one in their conscience, they don't want to do that, that, you know, that would be a violation of their conscience. And... But the, but the other person is like, well, I don't feel like this is a real relationship. Everybody else we know is doing this. And, and, and so there's a ton of pressure and maybe there is even the threat. I'm going to leave you or whatever. And, and, but if the first person has the, has faith, then they don't, if they have the faith of, of Christ, then they say, well, not my will, but yours be done father. And they say, if this person leaves, I'm okay because I'm taken care of. 
even if it feels like it's going to destroy me, I'm going to be okay because of the resurrection and I can live from within myself. I can live true to my own inner compass. And so this person retains their integrity. They, they are immune to the pressures that they're, that they're significant other. This person that's important in their life, but they're immune to them ultimately because of faith. And if they were to give up their integrity, it would not be because of faith, would it? Faith wouldn't call them to give up their integrity. Faith would call them to maintain it. So Paul says, whatever is not of faith is sin. So this code of conduct that is faith is something that we can violate. Uh, and it is when we act in a way that is capitulating to the pressures around us in, in violation to who we truly are. When we begin to be act inconsistent with our own inner compass for the sake of gaining someone's acceptance or um, putting, you know, preventing their punishment, their, you know, their uh, consequences that they place on us. But if we are casting ourselves on our Father and His will, as Christ did at the cross, with full expectation that resurrection power is coming behind this experience, then we never need to do that. We're free of both the, the threats and of the enticements of this world. The cross, if you, if you want to be simplistic, the cross sets us free from its enticements and the resurrection sets us free from its threats. The cross sets us free from the world's enticements and the resurrection sets us free from the world's threats. And I see you've got uh, a Bible passage pulled yeah. up here because I was just thinking, let's prove this from Scripture. Um, and so uh, Colossians 2, 13 through 15, it says, When you were dead in your sins and in your, the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. So again, here's this life from death motif. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness. So again, there's this, this sense that we owe something and he's saying, no, your, your debts are canceled. There's nothing to get a hold of it. And, and if that's the case, um, and he says, which stood against us and condemned us, he has taken it all away, nailing it to the cross. Now, what, was, what were the implications of that? He says, having disarmed the powers and authorities, now, these could either be spiritual beings, uh, such as in Daniel, that stand behind the earthly authorities, but it could also be earthly authorities and how they present. So if, as Jesus comes to earth and we're reading the Gospels, he's always at loggerheads with the civil and religious authorities because they were kind of one body in his life. And he's always at loggerheads with them. You know, that it's just always, he's always running counter to them, but that was the law of faith. That was the life of faith. Jesus demonstrates that. It's not that we're trying to be um, some subversive in some way, but there's no way to not be subversive if you're living in this alternative kingdom. So people come and they say, I need you to stop that because you're undermining my perceived well-being. And, and you say, well, your, you know, your protection of your, of yourself isn't my problem. I'm going to be, I'm going to live according to my own internal compass and what the Spirit's calling me to do. And they say, well, if you won't conform, then we will cause you harm. And you're like, well, that's your choice. And that's not my problem either. So we're suddenly free that the authorities are disarmed. They can't bring any kind of blame against us and they can't bring up any threats against us because of the cross and the empty tomb. And so that's what Paul's saying is, is like, you, you've been set free from those things. And, and consequently, then we have this obligation 
to live free. He says, therefore, do not let anyone judge you. <laughs> so there's this um, incumbents on us that that freedom isn't just a privilege, it's a responsibility. You must remain free. Don't let someone judge you in what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, therefore, is found in Christ. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person goes into great detail about what they've seen. They're puffed up with idle notions by, the, by their unspiritual mind. And so the gospel precludes latter-day revelation. It precludes piecemeal uh, directives that someone claim is from God. The gospel is this gorgeous firewall that says every individual is responsible before God to their own faith. And so whatever you might come and say, well, you know, God came and he told me to tell you to do this. And I'm like, well, I didn't hear that. So kick rocks. You know, it's not that I despise prophesying, but I, I also don't owe any sort of obeisance to what you think, you know, I, I'm, I'm the ultimate and final arbiter. My faith is the ultimate and final arbiter of whatever messages may come through. Okay. That's ultimate freedom. And I'm responsible for that freedom. Can you imagine if people understood the gospel like this for the past 2000 years, how many groups would not have sprung up, <laughs> how much church abuse, how much hierarchical authority would have been precluded by this idea that every individual is personally responsible to King Jesus and that there's nobody, even if they claim to have received some sort of a message from on high, who has the right to tell me, you know, with, with this kind of compel, compulsion, what to do. I'm responsible to remain free under the gospel. He says, those people have lost connection with the head. All of us are supposed to be directly connected to the head, right? I'm not connected to the head through you and you aren't through me. Okay, there's nobody in between. Nobody's the neck in the body of Christ, right? And, and, and he says, whom the whole body supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews grows as God causes it to grow. And so there's this organic growth. You know, the church isn't going to grow because I'm such a great leader. And, and if we would just follow me and God has endorsed me in my vision, just hear me. Man, that's poison. That's the elementary principles of the world. And he says in verse 20, since you died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world. What have we been talking about? Right? Since you died to those, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Doesn't that say that the experience of, of following Jesus must be beyond rules? That, that the very notion of being saved is, it, pre, it requires freedom. And that, that we're operating on faith as the antithesis to these structures of control. And that's the connection, at least between faith and the interpersonal freedom that we must have. And so if we, if we really talk about salvation as something that's past tense, it is from these, these elementary principles of the world. It is from worldliness. It is from external control. Now, we may still at some point give up, you know, and, and, and sin or something. We may give in to pressure. But what has happened to me and to you and to anybody who has chosen to accept the message of the gospel is that in Colossians 1.13, he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. So there is a past 
salvation, but it is salvation from citizenship in this world, participation in the structures of this world, salvation and um, becoming a part of the called out people of God are one thing. So I think I hear you saying that uh, there are implications to justification that we have not developed. It's not that you are arguing for um, a doctrine that is in addition to justification, uh, but rather that we haven't thought fully through the implications of our justification in Christ. Right. So that we are not merely, in, in being justified, we are not merely forgiven of sin, but also we are um, liberated from all uh, law and authority. Right. Um, and we are free to live as new creations yes. in God's kingdom. Right. And, and, and we must live free. Yeah. The, I think our missing this truth in how the Christian life ought to be lived, the implications of justification, unfortunately came from Luther and the Reformers' idea that there is this uh, justification, this transaction that happens in heaven— that, you know, a righteousness that we are bequeathed on the merits of Christ. And then there's a practical righteousness that we've got to read the Bible, find a litany of moral imperatives and conform ourselves to those. And that those two may not meet one another, that they run parallel in the life of a Christian, that the first one is what I need in order to get to heaven. So if I'm on my deathbed, I pray the prayer, I die, I'm going to heaven apart from any works. And we have to keep it that way. Okay, so if we protract that out and we say, well, I'm on my deathbed, I prayed the prayer, but miraculously I didn't die. And I lived another 10 years. But in that 10 years, I just lived like the devil. Am I going to heaven still? Well, we have to say yes if you were going to heaven previously. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? But if, if, if this other righteousness of Luther would say and, and others would say yes, but... Really, if you're thankful for that, if that's something that meant something to you, you're going to attempt to conform to a set of moral imperatives that you can find in the Bible or that some religious authority will give you. Now, there's a place for that person. What, what happens in, the, in that gap that's created by Luther's doctrine is the, the, that gap leaves a place for human religious authority. We have to be there to help you bridge that. So you join a church and we say, yes, you're saved by the grace of God through faith. And you're once saved, always saved. By the way, we need someone to help in the parking lot on Sunday morning. Also, did you watch a rated R movie last week? Because you need to tell me about that. And, you know, now, now the, the, the work of crossing that divide becomes a human work. And now we're back under the elementary principles of the world yet again. Because we didn't understand that that this we were set free so that everyone could shut their dadgum mouth about me and I can live before God. I'm not saying that we shouldn't speak the truth to each other. But ultimately, I don't get to compel you to live in a certain way. That faith has to set us free, not only from the consequences of sin, but from structures of authority and control interpersonally. That's the kind of existence that we've embraced through the gospel. Dying to the old way, rising again. We're participating. Hey, we, we talk about the idea that, that the kingdom of God is yet, but not yet. Mm -hmm. Okay? So if it's yet, Here, I mean, a lot of times. already, but yeah, not yet. Right. But when we say that, what we mean is 
the kingdom of God is not yet. <laughs> you know, we, we don't emphasize as much that the kingdom of God is now. And if the kingdom of God is now, then we ought to be living amongst ourselves the way we're going to live when Jesus comes back. Will there be police officers when Jesus comes back? Nope. Right? <laughs> Will anybody have to enforce any of this when he comes back? Now, if we can't live without enforcers and without interpersonal control here, how are we ever going to do it when he returns? We are learning to become people of conscience, people who are being transformed from within, and we've got to give each other space for that. So that's that have been saved. We've been translated from an existence based on rules to an existence based on the faith of the Son. You haven't said new creation, but I keep thinking new creation right. whenever you describe the Christian life in this way. Mm -hmm. We are a new creation. We, we have new hearts. God has put it in us, and, and he is developing it in us to do what is right, to do what is loving um, without compulsion. Yeah. Well, and, and a lot of that, so this... And salvation or yeah this freedom from this interpersonal control it presumes that there's a that there is a regaining of intrapersonal agency and so you know we talked about really salvation is from an external threat and that is these elementary principles of the world that would try to conform us confine us compel us yes i'm a preacher uh, to to do these things but but those things are necessary if from within I am in this state of death where I keep doing things that are disdainful to a moral person and hide my tracks, right? If I do things that I hate and then I regret it and I hide it, how can anybody trust me to be free? And, and so there is this, this freedom, the salvation that's happening from within that is also the gospel in that I'm dying to sin in my flesh and I am receiving resurrection power through the Holy Spirit to live a new way. And that is, I think that is more of the being saved part of salvation. So Paul is describing this, you know, if you walk by the Spirit, you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. He says that if you if you follow the spirit of Christ, then the same spirit who raised Jesus from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies. And by life, he means this integrated agency, this ability for our better nature, for that inner goodness to become the dominant role, take the dominant role in our life. And if that's true, then we can be trusted to live without rules. So... The, the faith of the gospel sets us free from those interpersonal controls, but it also sets us free to live intrapersonally consistent lives. And so, but for that reason, we cannot be conformed to laws. So I think Paul would say, if you find yourself sinning after you become a Christian, the answer is not to go back to a list of confining rules because that will only elicit further disintegration and fracturing of yourself. That you're going to have to trust that, that pointing yourself at the cross and accepting the promise of the resurrection power in your life is going to work. Even though you just sinned, that, you know, in Galatians 5, he says, We who, uh, we by uh, faith hope for uh, the promise of righteousness, that righteousness is coming. 
but it cannot come through the mechanism of law. So we have been saved from law. We have been saved from intrapersonal control. And, and this is a crazy risky thing to take a bunch of people who are not trustworthy at one point and say, you're free, go. And then say, don't come back to this cell. You know, if you get out there and you find that you're not doing a very good job with your freedom, do better, <laughs> but don't come back to this cell. You know, but a lot of times what people want to do is they find that they're they they've done something that they're ashamed of or something, you know, that is problematic and they want to run back to rules and laws. And so Jesus says, abide in me and you will bear the fruit. I think that's what he's saying in John 15. And and the danger of not abiding is, is that we would retreat back into a rule based system. And the reason we retreat back into a rule-based system is because we're not seeing the fruit. And we're like, this isn't working. And Jesus is like, let it work itself out. You know, do the, do the process. And it will. It will never work if you go back to that old system. Because that old system is predicated on failure. In Colossians 2, he, he talks about, if we, if we continue on, here's what's, here's what's interesting. Okay, so he's saying, if you, if you died with Christ to the forces of the world. Why are you going back to rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Okay. So we can become so confined with stuff that he, that we retreat back, right? We, we think, well, I obviously can't be trusted with this freedom. I'm going to re retreat back to rules. And he says, why are you doing that? He says, these rules, here, here's the irony is these rules, which have to do with the things that are all destined to perish with use are based on merely human commands and teachings it doesn't mean that you can't find these kinds of teachings in the Bible. It means that they are predicated on a human way of doing things. Okay. You don't need a religious system to have a set of rules with rewards and punishment, right? That's a human way of doing things. God accommodated a human way of doing things in the Old Testament law. But he's saying you don't need that now because you transcended this fallen humanity you're part of a new species, a new race. So he says, such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom, right? So we're like, man, I'm just not living the kind of life. I need to just go live in an Amish community and I need to self-flagellate and I'm going to get control of my porn addiction now, right? Yeah. And he says, that looks like it's going to work. You put, the, you put an ironclad filter on your computer. Now you're good to go, right? And he says, that looks like it's going to work. And he says, but, but, with this self-imposed worship, this false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Any place you find the whitewashed wall of legalistic prescriptions, there are dead men's bones of lust and greed and selfishness. That, that, that person behind all of that confinement is disgusting and despicable and they smell bad. I know that because I've been them, you know, and only where there is this freedom can we, can this saving take place within us so that our personal growth is beginning and is, is continuing on. So we are being saved. How does this, the, how is this faith by which we're living in freedom? How is this the faith of Christ? Right. Well, it has that particular configuration. Anytime Paul points at it, remember, he says, you have died. You know, Paul never gets more than three verses away from the gospel. <laughs> read the, read the, the letters. Okay. So the intrapersonal gospel that we just talked about, he's disarmed the powers. What's the worst they can do? Kill us? That's already over, right? What's the worst they can do? 
convict us, condemn us, that's done. They can't do that. So the, the specifically the gospel, as I've died to that, I've been justified. I am a child of God, and I'm going to rise again on the last day. So what are you going to do? I'm free from you. That's one. Two, where there is this inclination to sin, the sin in the flesh, Paul repeatedly says, take that to the cross. You know, that we are, I'm not pursuing a better version of myself, a version of myself that's not an alcoholic. I am pursuing a a version of Jesus. And so as I pursue him, and as I die to that, so let's say somebody's an alcoholic and they've been an alcoholic their whole life. And, and now they've come to Christ and they've been told, you know what, all of that's done and you are risen again and you're a new person, go and live in the freedom of Christ. And, and this person finds that tomorrow morning they just really need a drink. And by tomorrow evening, they've got the shakes. And by the next morning, they're hallucinating. Right. One common hallucination that alcoholics have, ironically, is of skulls and of death. Now, if you don't have the faith in the resurrection, that will scare you off your sobriety. But if you can look that skull in the face and say, hallelujah, amen, my, my Lord has conquered death. Death is swallowed up in victory. You can take those DTs to the cross. They can become your cross. They are your moment of fellowship with Christ. As you are sweating great drops of blood, you can be there and be held by him. And in that moment, the power of the resurrection will flood in. And you don't have to be that person anymore. You are being saved. Now you have a moment of victory that you can celebrate and it was all him. So you have nothing to boast in. And you have everything to give him glory for. And it was the cross and the empty tomb that got you there. It was the faith of Christ as you sit there in your own personal Gethsemane and you say, Father, not my will, but yours be done. Thank you that I can call you Father. And so you, you take that to anything, anything that you're, you've struggled with, you know, that. And so Paul invites that. He says, take your lusts. Take your sexual immorality, take your coarse joking, take your um, addictions and anything else. Again and again in the, in the letters, his ethic is you died to this, now live to this again and again. It's always the gospel. But what we have to do is realize that Paul is showing, he's giving us fish. He's saying, here's a fish. When he says, you know, die to your sexual immorality and instead embrace love and generosity and, and live to that, that's a fish. But what he would have us do and what author of the Hebrew letters and others would say is that Matthew through Revelation is a bunch of fish, okay? But we've got to learn to fish. That those are examples of people who were showing us how to fish, how to find that moral guidance from the gospel. Paul isn't independently going to a cave and getting a list of prohibitions. He's simply demonstrating how the gospel relates to our practical lives today and the the morality. But if we can get past that and say, well, I'm just going to go straight to the gospel on this one because Paul didn't have an iPhone. You know, 
And, and so we can just go to, straight to the gospel on this and we can say, Lord, I've, I've died to this world and I'm, I've risen with you. I'm a new creature in you because of what you've done. How do I use my iPhone in a way that glorifies you? And, and you'll find your message there. It's not like it's we're left without guidance. That the you'll gospel, find your message there in the gospel. It is that the gospel is the message that continues to speak. And so the author of the Hebrew letter says, God, who in various times and various ways spoke to our fathers, um, has in these last last days spoken mm-hmm. to us through his son. So the Hebrew writer isn't saying, I'm now speaking to you from God. He's saying God has already spoken to you, and let's celebrate that together. And it's this message about his son that informs us yeah, on and, how to live our lives. Well, and the son's wordless message of dying for us and mm-hmm. rising again. Mm-hmm. That, that uh, Titus 2, the grace of God has appeared teaching us how did the grace of God appear, right? That there's a visual, God gave us a visual aid. Here's my grace, here's what it looks like. Boom, the cross, the empty tomb. And he says, teaching us to reject, um, what is it? Ungodliness. Ungodliness and um, I don't have to bring it up, but I, I just, I was rehearsing this one in my mind the other day. Um, but you know, that we might live a holy, righteous, self-controlled in this present eight, this present evil age. That's, that's salvation. That's what salvation looks like living, holy, righteous. Yeah. And he says, for the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, which is when we will be saved. Mm-hmm. So that's... Well, that sort of ties it all up with a bow. Thanks, everybody, for uh, being with us today. If you have questions, uh, surely there are questions that come to mind as we're talking, things we're missing, things we're not being clear about. Email us at discussion at faithrecoverypodcast.com. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.